Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17 as we continue our studies in Paul's second missionary journey. And this morning we'll be looking at uh, the first four verses of Acts chapter 17. Paul has been in uh, Philippi uh, once he arrived in Macedonia, and his ministry there has been uh, concluded by the providence of God, and he's going to be moving on to Thessalonica. So we'll pick it up here, and I'd like to uh, begin by reading for you Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 4. And since I'm reading the inspired Word of God which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, please give careful, reverent attention to the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 17, starting actually in chapter 16, verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, we are continuing in Paul's second missionary journey. And just to remind you, the book of Acts, in which we're studying, is to show us basically the work of Jesus Christ in building His church. And Christ is building His church through the power of the Holy Spirit, using key men to spread the gospel uh, throughout the land. Primarily, Peter and Paul is what the book of Acts is about. Remember again the key verse of this book, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Luke, the author of this book, has uh, told us about the filling of the Spirit and Pentecost. He's shown us about the ministry of the gospel in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria. And now we're in the remotest parts of the earth. We're way out in the extremes of the Roman Empire. We're in Macedonia. And so he's tracing for us Christ building his church through the power of the Holy Spirit using key apostles in preaching the gospel. I think the, the purpose of this uh, book, of course, is to encourage us as to the ultimate mission of the church, which is the Great Commission, which should be the mission of Northwest Bible Church, to make disciples of all the nations. Making disciples begins with evangelism, then it's followed up by discipleship, 
making disciples who in turn will make other disciples. And we're never to lose this vision. This is the focus for why we are here. We are not here to seek first our kingdom, but to seek first God's kingdom. We're not here just to totally immerse ourselves in everything temporal and physical, but to have an eye on eternity, to invest in eternity. Because our lives, no matter how long we live on this earth, are still but a shadow. They're a mist. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And the wise man and the wise woman will always live in light of eternity because there is a heaven and there is a hell and there is only one gospel of Jesus Christ by which sinners can uh, receive the free gift of everlasting life. So Paul and Silas have now been released from the prison in Philippi. They're still suffering the wounds of being beaten with rods. And they go to Lydia's house in chapter 16, verse 40. Lydia, the, the very prominent uh, woman who was converted, God opened her heart that she might believe the things preached to her. So they go to her house. She probably had a large house. And they saw the brethren there, meaning that the young little church meeting there probably met in Lydia's home. And they encouraged them and then they departed. Now, one of the things we also learn, uh, if you pay careful attention to the pronouns that Luke uses, is that he's going to stay behind in Philippi. Luke is, the author of this book, traveling companion of Paul. Remember, they picked him up in Troas. This is where Paul left Antioch on the second missionary journey. They go through the Galatian region, which was the sphere of his first missionary journey. They revisited those cities. They encouraged and built up the church, establishes the churches. And then the Spirit of God said, no, you can't go into Asia. No, you can't go north into Bithynia. And so they end up in Troas, wondering, Lord, where are you sending us next? They did not know. Paul has a Macedonian call vision and he tells them to go to Macedonia, which they go and they end up in Philippi. But at Troas is where they meet Luke. That's where he begins to, to join the, uh, the apostle Paul and the others, Timothy and Silas. And he goes with them to Philippi, but he stays in Philippi when they leave. Some have theorized that maybe he was from Philippi, that was his hometown. But at any rate, as a Gentile believer, he would be a great asset to the young church there at Philippi. So he stays behind. Paul, Timothy, and Silas move on. But uh, Luke is, is uh, staying behind, continuing to work with this small uh, and very young church. We also see that now they're going to travel to the city of Thessalonica. Now notice they're going to travel from Philippi to Amphipolis and then Apollonia, however you get that word out, and then they'll end up in Thessalonica. So they're about halfway through the second missionary journey. And from Thessalonica, they're going to go to Berea, then they're going to go down to Athens and they'll go to Corinth. And when Paul's in Corinth, he's going to write 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. That's when he writes those two letters back to the church that we're just about ready to begin to study. 
And then from uh, Corinth, when he leaves there, he has a short stay in Ephesus. And then he ends up back down in Caesarea. He visits the apostles, the ones that are there in Jerusalem, the church, the elders that are there. And then he returns back home to Antioch. So that's kind of where we're at. The journey to Thessalonica was uh, a journey that they took uh, on uh, the Via Ignatia that ran through the middle of Philippi. This is one of those major Roman roads that they built in the second century BC that was so strategic in so many ways. One of the great gifts of the Romans to the whole empire was that they made all these roads throughout the, the Roman Empire. I mean, hundreds and thousands of miles uh, that they made throughout the, uh, throughout the empire. And this one particular road goes all the way from the, what was that, the Adriatic Sea, all the way over to Istanbul. And it was about 700 miles long. It was 20 feet wide, made out of stone, very thick stone. And this was a, a tremendous blessing to the world back then. The Roman road system made travel easier. It carried Roman troops to battle. It carried taxes back to Rome. It carried merchandise to various ports and cities. And in the providence of God, it also carried the gospel to the very ends of the earth. So they're going to take this road now from Philippi all the way down to Thessalonica. That is a trip of about 100 miles, 90 to 100 miles. You can see some of the terrain that they're going to be traveling through. They pass through these other two cities that are about 30 miles or so distant. So it, they probably left Philippi and they went to Amphipolis, about a 30-mile walk in one day. They probably spent the night there. Then they went to Apollonia, spent the night there, and then they ended up in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city and the administrative center of Macedonia. It was a commercial city where the traffic of the sea met the traffic of the land. So it was a very, very important city. It had a population of probably around 70,000. And it was also a free city, which meant that they still had to keep Caesar happy, but they were exempt from a lot of Rome's taxes, and they were autonomous meaning that they could run their own local affairs. They weren't subject to the Roman provincial administration. They could pass their own laws and appoint their own magistrates. So they were a free city. So that was something that they prized, something they would not want to lose. And apparently, part of Paul's strategy was to concentrate on these larger cities of the Roman Empire thinking that if he established a strong church there, then they would reach out to the other smaller villages and cities in the area, which they did and which the church at Thessalonica will eventually do as well. When they arrived in Thessalonica, they, uh, of course, found, uh, had to find a place to stay. And they end up staying with a man by the name of Jason, who will appear later on uh, in Acts chapter 17. And uh, they began to work. They began to find work to support themselves financially as tent makers. The first letter that Paul will write back to Thessalonica when he's in Corinth, he'll tell them in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 that we worked night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. 
So they, by and large, they didn't want to burden the churches, so they were committed to working. And they were tent, Paul was a tent maker, so he did tent making work. Uh, obviously, he went to the synagogues, as we're told in verse uh, 1 of chapter 17. There's a synagogue in Thessalonica. And according to Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue for three Sabbaths and he shared the Scriptures with them. We also know that during his time at Thessalonica, he, see, he received at least two financial gifts <clears throat> excuse me, from the church at Philippi. That's where Luke is. That's where Lydia is. They have a, a generous heart. And they send two financial gifts to Paul so that he could spend more time in ministry and less time having to earn his own living. So he's probably there for longer than three weeks would be, the, would be my guess. But one of the things I want to emphasize before we actually jump more into the text is just God's persevering grace in the life of Paul. Paul and Silas had just been severely beaten with rods at Philippi. They had been imprisoned. And at that point, once they were released... They went to Lydia's house. They encouraged the young church there. And then they took right off heading for the next stop. Heading to Thessalonica. And now I would imagine, I, I think, well, what would I have done had I just had my back brutally beaten with rods, bruised, probably cracked ribs, probably uh, lacerations, bleeding, pain that's going to last for days or weeks while your body's healing up. And the very next day, he gets up and all of that pain, he starts his journey to Thessalonica. He's going to walk 30 miles. And then the next day, he's going to walk another 30 miles. And the next day, another 30 miles or so until he gets to Thessalonica. What would I have done? I think I would have probably turned in my two-week notice. And cut it down to about a two-hour notice. You know, Lord, I'm out of here. I need a break. I mean, golly, I've got so much pain. I can't do this anymore. Lord, I, I need to take a siesta, a long one, a vacation. I need to stop. I'm not going to go forward with this. He didn't do it. His attitude wasn't, you know, God, I've paid my dues. It's time for somebody else to carry this, this burden now. It's not his attitude. Same thing back in Lystra in his first missionary journey. He got stoned in Lystra and he got right up the next day by the grace of God and he moved in and continued his ministry. And what we see in Paul is an incredible example of the empowering, motivating, sustaining, persevering grace of God in this man's life. He did not let his bodily pain stop him from fulfilling his God-ordained ministry. Amazing. He was filled with such a passion for serving Christ. And later he would write to the Philippian church, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he knew that he was destined for afflictions. And when he wrote to the Thessalonians his first letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, you all know the trials that were destined for us. They were a part of God's predetermined plan. But God gave them grace to persevere through their hardships and their trials. What we learn from this, I think, 
is that the Christian life is not a problem-free life. Does anybody here this morning have a problem-free life? If you do, please write a book and tell us how you, how you do it. Life is not easy. Life is difficult. And Paul, I think, demonstrates this for us. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And yet, in the midst, he endured tremendous trials and afflictions. And so will you and I. You will have your trials and your afflictions. And it doesn't mean that God has turned His back on you. You can be doing exactly what God has called you to do. And still, you'll have hassles and issues and problems and trials within your life. It just goes with the territory. So don't lose heart when you're facing obstacles or roadblocks or trials. Whether it's home or in your marriage or whether it's at work with those people that are just, they just irritate you. Or at school. Life is designed to have these necessary trials and afflictions because the Lord has many reasons for sending them in our life. It's interesting that our Savior... In the book of Hebrews, we are told that Christ was perfected through suffering. And we're told in chapter 5 of that same book that He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. So if Christ was perfected through suffering, if He learned obedience through suffering, then how much more do we need to learn it? And that's the way to look at our trials and our afflictions. That they're a necessary part of God's providential plan for our life. As Paul told the Galatians, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Job reminds us that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. But don't let those trials, those troubles derail you from following Christ or continuing to serve Him in whatever vocation or whatever walk of life He's put you in. Continue to serve Him. Just keep looking to Him for strength and grace and guidance. Because if God can give grace to Paul to get up the next morning and make his, continue on his ministry in the second missionary journey, after being beaten severely, then God can give you and me grace too to persevere through our trials, to continue to serve Him and seek to honor Him no matter what He throws at us. You see, the measure of grace in your life is not the absence of trials, but it's how we respond when in the midst of them. That's the measure of grace. Are we trusting God do we acknowledge His sovereign control? Are we seeking to honor Him in our responses to the trials that He's providentially put in our life? And for the Apostle Paul, it is full steam ahead. I'm not going to let this pain in my back stop me from continuing the work that God has given me to do. And you see God's mercy and God's persevering grace in this Apostle and that same grace is there for us as well. So let us not forget that. Well, opposition, whether it's a beating with rods or whatever opposition may be in our lives, always bring opportunity. And that's true with the Apostle Paul. 
So we find that the opportunity is now going to present itself when he arrives in Thessalonica. And we're told in verse 1 that there is a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, verse 2, he would go to the synagogues and he would preach Christ to the Jews first. The gospels to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And notice in verse 2 how he ministered to them. We can see some of the method of his ministry. When he arrived in Thessalonica, going to the synagogue in verse 2, for three weeks, three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So that's what he did. Notice it's from the Scriptures. He went there and his focus was on the Word of God. Now because this church, this synagogue rather, is in the, the, uh, the diaspora or the Greek uh, world, if you will, they would have used the Septuagint copy of the Old Testament. That was written in Greek. That was the language they knew because many of these Jews living out of, out of Judea had lost the ability to read and understand Hebrew. So since Greek was the common language, they had the Scriptures about 200 years B.C., was translated into Greek. So that's probably what they had in their synagogue. So the synagogue leader, having uh, found this visitor showing up in the synagogue and learning that you know, he's uh, Paul and that he was a Pharisee, he was a student of Gamaliel, no doubt would have given him the opportunity to read the Scriptures and, and preach or teach the people. So they probably handed him the vellum or the parchment of the Septuagint from the Torah Ark Because in all the synagogues, there was a little shrine area where they kept all the scrolls of the Torah and the prophets. They would take out a scroll and they would hand it to the one who would read it. And he probably took it from their hands, opened it up to an appropriate passage of Scripture and began to preach Christ to them. But notice that it's all from the Scriptures in verse 2. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That was their authority. It was the Word of God. Now notice what he did with the Word of God. With the Scriptures. First, in verse 2, he reasoned with them. And this is an interesting word because originally the word uh, had the idea of a dialogue. In fact, our English word dialogue comes from this particular Greek word. And it originally implied an exchange with the person you're talking with, maybe questions and answers, a certain level of interaction, discussing with them the arguments of the text. So let me just kind of fast forward here just for a second. This is the modern day city of Thessalonica, I think called Saloniki now or something like that. This is Thessalonica. Uh, You can see again, it's very strategic. It had its own port. This is an ancient wall there in Thessalonica. And uh, they say that possibly the Apostle Paul would have traveled through the the gate, the door on the right. uh, Possibly. Because this this is an old part of the wall that still remains. Right across the sea is Mount Olympus. So you can see this is where all the gods of of the Olympia are supposedly dwelling. So you can just find the right in the shadow of all this Greek idolatry and all of this uh, influence. 
that no doubt had an impact on some of the Jews as well. But we're back here, and we're looking at uh, the method, and he reasoned with them. Now again, how much of that took place, we don't know, but this is one of the words that describes Paul's method of ministry. He reasoned from the Scriptures. The word reason is also used when he arrives in Athens. It's a word that's found when he's at Corinth and Ephesus and Troas. And even before Felix and Caesarea, he reasoned with the people he was trying to evangelize. I think that's an important word because it implies that truth must be understood. Questions must be answered. Objections need a response. So he's shining the light of Scripture because the, the mind must understand before the heart can be warmed. So he took the Scriptures and he began to reason with them in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he explained to them. It's another key word. This word actually has the idea of to, to open up, to make clear. And this is the same word that Jesus Christ, that Luke uses of Jesus Christ in Luke 24, when it says after His resurrection that He opened the minds of His disciples to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. Same word. He opened it up. He helped them to understand it. So Paul would reason from the Scriptures. He would explain the things they did not understand, opening it up for them, because illuminating the mind again was very, very critical to understanding the Gospel. Being understood is very important for any teacher. And I think we get in trouble sometimes. I get in trouble because I'm always assuming a certain level of knowledge and I use words that you may not understand. I've even been known to create words Stick a couple of them together that don't make any sense at all. It reminds me of the teacher at the VBS that was teaching that Jesus shed His blood for our sins. And a little girl came up afterwards to him and said, what does shed mean? Because in her mind, the shed was where you kept your pony off to the side of the house. So Jesus put His blood in a shed? I don't understand that. So you need to open up and explain the Word so that people can, can correctly understand exactly what Jesus did. So He explained. He opened up the Scriptures to them. The third one is that He gave evidence, which can be translated, He proved by bringing in additional Scripture or by giving logical reasons to support the Scriptures or something in that direction. And finally, that He proclaimed to them in verse 3. Notice it says in verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. And a proclamation is not just a suggestion or just, you know, possibly consider this. But it's no, this is truth. This is gospel fact. He proclaimed it. He didn't just propose it as something to consider. But He proclaimed it as a truth that they must embrace and receive and believe. 
And all in all, doing all of this from the Scriptures, the reasoning, the explaining, the giving evidence, the proclaiming, all from the Word of God was all about Christ. And so we see that again in verse 3. That he was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Those were the two aspects of the Gospel that Paul always camped on. He had a Christ-centered Gospel ministry. So that when he arrived someplace new, his theme, his subject was Jesus Christ. And he didn't waver from that. And people always have to, you know, come up with all kinds of other issues and other questions. But Paul was cemented on explaining Christ. He was very gospel centered. Notice what he emphasized in verse 3. Number one, that the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, had to suffer. And it was necessary. In verse 3. The Christ had to suffer. For there's no other way for us to be saved. But He had to suffer. Now I would be. uh, I wish I was there. To take notes. On what He actually said. From the Scriptures. And explaining. and, And reasoning. And giving evidence of this. But I could only imagine. Maybe where He might have gone. He may have started with Genesis chapter 3 and talked about the seed of the woman and that uh, the serpent, Satan, would bruise him on the heel. He had to begin to suffer. And then immediately after that, because Adam and Eve had sinned against God and now were aware of the consequences of their sin, their nakedness, that God then slaughtered an animal sacrifice and made garments of skin, had to come from an animal, so an animal had to die, and shed its blood. He made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. And I began, I would think, that they probably uh, were informed with the connection that the seed of the woman would be bruised by the serpent, but He would also die and shed His blood and cover our nakedness, cover our sin. He had to suffer. He had to die for our sins to be covered. He may have started there. I don't know. He may have emphasized the animal sacrifices and the necessity for them to die in order for our sins to be atoned for. But he would explain to them, of course, that the blood of goats and bulls can't take away our sin. They don't share our nature. They're animals. They can't really identify with us. They can't take our place. But the Messiah could. And maybe he talked about the Day of Atonement and and the sprinkling of the blood that brought about the remission, the covering of the sins of Israel. Maybe he talked about that and went to Exodus and Leviticus and and began to explain to them why the Messiah had to suffer. Because we are sinners. And the only way we can be forgiven is for blood to be shed. But it has to be the blood of one worthy to die for our sins. I wish I could have heard that. been a great message. He may have also taken them to Psalm 22 and just showed how the sufferings of David became a a type of the sufferings of the Messiah. So that even on the cross, 
Christ would repeat the words of David in Psalm 22 verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He had to suffer to save us from our sins. And go down through verse 22, verse 7, All who see me sneer at me and wag their head. That's exactly what they did when Christ was being crucified. They're being fulfilling this, this psalm even in their... Their scoffing of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And they said to Him, literally, quoted in the Gospels, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. In verse 14, where where David in his suffering as a picture of Christ on the cross, He was poured out like water. All of His bones were out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. He would, be die. he would die and be buried. Verse 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots exactly fulfilled in Jesus Christ and His death. And maybe... Paul began to open up the Word of God and show them that this was a type and a picture of the coming Son of David who had experienced similar things. Why? So that He could alone atone for our sins. Or maybe He took them to Isaiah 53, verse 5. That He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. And maybe he explained all of them the glory of Isaiah 53. Or maybe he went to Numbers 21 verse 9. The bronze serpent after all the Israelites had sinned and were bitten by snakes and dying. The only way they could live is to, is to look at the brazen serpent as a type of Jesus Christ. Maybe he explained that to them. We don't know. But he was in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, reasoning with them, explaining, giving evidence that the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, had to suffer. And he, and he proved it through the Word of God, through the Old Testament alone. And then, of course, he went on to the second major point, that once he suffered and died, he had to rise from the dead. Verse 3 again. And he may have taken them to Psalm 16, verse 10, where again David prophetically speaks of his future messianic son when he said, For you will not abandon my soul to shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He would be raised from the dead. A great passage that uh, Paul may very well have taken them to. Or in Psalm 2, where God the Father says, I've installed my King upon Zion. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and surely I will give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession, so that now the Messiah will be enthroned as a King. And he probably took them to that passage, because he had to die and be raised from the dead, and then exalted to heaven at the right hand of God. He may have also taken them to Psalm 110 where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's now the ruling monarch of the universe. He's a King of kings and Lord of lords. And He will rule in the midst of His enemies. So He may have taken them to to show them the necessity of the resurrection. And once the Messiah dies, He won't stay dead. He must rise from the dead because without the resurrection then how do we know He could actually save us? 
Without the resurrection, how do we know that He conquered our sin and had victory over death and hell? Without the resurrection, how do we know that His sacrifice was acceptable to God and totally sufficient to pay for our sins? So that the resurrection proves that Jesus triumphed over sin and death. That He conquered our curse. He was victorious. And He and He alone offers those who believe and repent the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. And then He kind of ties it all together when He says at the end of verse 3, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. The Old Testament said that the Christ had to suffer. He proved that. He also said that the Christ had to be raised from the dead and that all of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now this, this would have been very difficult for Jews to accept because a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to them because in their mind, and according to Deuteronomy 21, to be crucified meant you were cursed. And I'm sure they wrestled with, well, how you say, okay, Paul, you're telling us the Messiah, our Messiah, had to suffer and be crucified and put to death. But to be crucified means He was cursed. That doesn't make sense. He's supposed to be our reigning King and overthrow all the nations and elevate us. How can all that make sense? And so Paul no doubt had to spend great amounts of time explaining that that God sent His Son to be crucified and cursed not for His sin, but for our sin. As Paul will later say, that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And all of those prophecies about the Messiah suffering and being raised from the dead that has happened in Jerusalem. This Jesus Christ has fulfilled that He is the Messiah. He was the one who suffered. He has risen from the dead. He's now exalted to the Father's right hand. The Jewish theologians uh, back then wrestled with these things. They wrestled with how in the world could the Messiah be suffer uh, suffer like in Isaiah 53. And they were, how could that be? And so some of them said, well, Isaiah 53 is not about the Messiah, it's about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is suffering at the hands of the Gentile nations. And they interpreted it that way. Paul probably had to reason with them and give them proof that that was the wrong uh, answer to understanding Isaiah 53. Others would later say, well, there must be two messiahs. An, an inferior messiah who suffers, who's not that big of a deal. But then the, the second messiah, the son of David, who will come and reign and conquer and be the messiah we're all looking for. And he may have had to deal with that as well. But Paul makes it very clear that this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ of Scripture. He fulfills all of those prophecies and types of the coming Messiah. I think what we can glean from this so far is just the idea of Paul's method in doing evangelism. 
Paul appealed to the mind, not the emotions. He was saturated with Scripture. And since the Jews revered Scripture, he had common ground with them that he could take them to the Word of God. But Paul did evangelism through intense Bible study. And I think this is something we can glean from this. I think oftentimes when we do evangelism, we just think of kind of a, a momentary word or a testimony, something real quick. But the Apostle Paul, I think, would encourage us that if we want to do evangelism, try to engage an unbeliever in Bible study. Try to see if they would meet with you regularly and maybe read through the Gospel of John for several weeks in a row because it takes that time to kind of explain and deal with questions, deal with objections. And that's something that we could all do by God's grace with people that we work with or during the noon hour at lunch or something like that. Look for opportunities to actually get down and read Scripture with unbelievers week after week after week like Paul did. His intent was not to entertain people. He didn't bring a light show or a drama into the synagogue. He dealt with the Word of God. He dealt with Scripture. And he simply opened up the Word of God and reasoned with them to explain to them how Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And when the Spirit of God is at work through the Word of God, then sinners get saved. And this is exactly what happened at Thessalonica. Look at verse 4. The results of His ministry. The method was to use Scripture to reason and to help them understand the Gospel. And then the results of His ministry. In verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That is, some of the Jews in the synagogue were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And what's I'm reading from the New American Standard. But that word joined in verse 4, you may have something different in your translation, is actually a, uh, a different word, uh, or, or a word that, that really speaks theologically of what's going on behind the scenes when they joined Paul, because actually... This particular word in the Greek is a passive voice. They didn't actively join Paul. They were joined to Paul. And it's implied that they were joined to Paul by God. God joined them to Paul. And the actual root meaning of this word is to add or assign by lot. And whenever you run into that in Scripture, you see... The sovereign hand of God because the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So in effect, what Luke is saying using this word is that God sovereignly brought these conversions about and God joined them to Paul. It was God's work. They were passive. God did the work. But the Spirit of God was involved too. They were persuaded. The Spirit of God turned on the lights. And they began to see their sin and see their need for a Savior. And so they embraced Christ by faith. So in verse 4, we find that some of them, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So apparently this synagogue had a fair number of Greeks who who were drawn to the monotheism of Judaism. They were drawn to the morality of Judaism, but they didn't want to become full-fledged Jews. But they heard this gospel, and now suddenly they can be forgiven and saved 
by the free grace of God. They don't have to jump through all these legalistic hoops that Judaism was telling them they had to do, that their flesh kind of resisted. They could come as a free gift and accept Christ and be saved and be forgiven of all their sins. So a large number of these God-fearing Greeks turned from idols to a true and living God, Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 1. So in addition to these God-fearing Greeks, there were other Greeks and Gentiles not attached to the synagogue who apparently heard the gospel and come to faith as well. And then we also read in verse 4 of a number of leading women. Again, notice how many women are prominent here. These are leading women. These are prominent businesswomen like Lydia or the wives of the leaders of the community who had great influence. And they came to faith as well. The character of their response. And all of them were joined to Paul by the sovereign work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. Because when Paul finally writes his first letter back to the Thessalonians, he tells them that they were chosen and beloved by God. Which means that obviously they came to faith because they were ultimately numbered among the elect. And he said, The gospel came to you not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the Spirit of God brought a little revival there in Thessalonica. And they received the Word and accepted the Word of God, not as a Word of man, but for what it really is, the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he's telling them. They become imitators of Paul, meaning that they receive the Word of much tribulation, like Paul is going to receive tribulation. They receive it, and they're not discouraged. They don't abandon the faith because of the persecution or the afflictions. They persevere by the grace of God. And they actually become an example to all the believers in Macedonia in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 because they begin to take the gospel out to all the other communities in the area. So they catch the Great Commission zeal themselves and they want to carry the gospel to other villages that have not yet heard the gospel. And so Paul commends them by saying, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you into the surrounding areas. So they carried on the good work. Well, in wrapping this up, I think we can uh, see where the opposition that Paul faced in Philippi brought a new opportunity for the gospel. And the same thing will be true in your life and in my life as well. You will have trials. You'll have opposition. You'll have troubles in your life. Expect them. Don't be discouraged by them. Receive them from the Father's hand. They are there for a purpose. We may not understand what that purpose is there. uh, What it's going to accomplish. But God has a plan. Expect those trials to come in all shapes and sizes. But resolve that with God's help you will persevere through them. That with God's help, those oppositions in your life will give you opportunities to share Christ with someone else. Or to at least be a witness to let others know that you're trusting in Him, that you rejoice that God is in control. Opposition brings opportunities. And in this case, in Paul's case, it was the opportunity to preach Christ to new people. So when God sends oppositions into your life, Know that they're there for a reason and a purpose. 
But also be mindful that they are there for, for a, a reason to probably give you an opportunity to bear witness for the Lord in some way. And as we do that, we will be more sensitive to fulfilling the Great Commission because that's what we're to be about. Sharing the Gospel, making disciples of all nations. And if we look at the Apostle Paul, what an incredible man who was able to do all this by the grace of God. And that grace is available for us as well. So may we be encouraged and challenged by the Apostle Paul and to know that when we have an opportunity to share the Gospel, let's just focus on Christ. On Him crucified and raised from the dead. Because that's what makes Him the only Savior who can actually take away our sins. And as He was so focused on Jesus Christ, that is really the encouragement of the Lord's Supper that we can now focus our attention that it was necessary that the Christ had to suffer. Why did He have to suffer? So that He could die and pay the penalty for our sins. So that any sinner who is convicted of their sin, who repents and believes in Christ, might receive the free gift of everlasting